Welcome to the Wee Burnout edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios, joined as ever by Anna Shemansky. Hello. And by Emily Peck of the Huffington Post. Hello. Hello. And wait for it. We are going to talk about Crunchless Doritos. <laughs> You're going to have to wait for this one, but there is going to be, trust me on this one, somewhere in, a se- in one of these three segments, we're going to talk about Crunchless Doritos. I have decided. I have decided it, and so it shall be so. Stay tuned. Um, we are going to talk about the World Bank, which is a massive institution which is kind of a little bit in turmoil because its head just stepped down mysteriously. Um, we are going to talk about de-branding and the difference between companies of brands and brands of companies. And it's it's going to be WeWork-tastic because WeWork is no longer calling itself WeWork. Or rather, WeWork is still calling itself WeWork, but that's the subsidiary and the hold co is called... The We. The We. The we. <laughs> um, well done, The We. That was a great idea, which was universally applauded on the Twitters. And, but first, I think... We should talk about burnout because this is apparently something which every millennial identifies with. And if you are struggling to adult, then this first segment is for you. All of that coming up on Sleep Money. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. So let's start with millennials and whether they're burned out and whether all of us are burned out because I actually just did get a press release from the University of Phoenix saying that 55% <laughs> of people say that they're burned out, whether they're millennial or not, and they all think it's work-related. I mean, I think that's justified. So what we're here to talk about is this incredibly popular article that BuzzFeed published over the weekend um, about millennial burnout, the phenomenon of millennial burnout by Anne Helen Peterson. And I guess the basic thesis of the piece was that millennials are burned out because of um, the economy, basically, because of how hard it is in the job market, how hard they have to work, essentially, and how precarious precarious it is out there for working adults now and okay. it's not and it's not just hard work it's precarious work which precarious are which are key. orthogonal to each other if you have a 
career where you need to work hard, but it is very structured, and you know that your employer has given you a permanent job, and you know, you know that you're making mortgage payments and all the rest of it. That somehow you can fit hard work into that structure. Whereas if you're in a more precarious situation where you don't really know what your career even is, then it can that creates a bunch of kind of low-level stress that exacerbates whatever the hard work parts are. So if it were the case that millennials were actually this incredibly precarious generation, I would say, okay, but it's just absolutely not. I feel like we have these narratives that we talk about with millennials. And while I am very sympathetic for the fact that a lot of millennials came into the workplace during the Great Recession, I am sympathetic about some of the student debt load. However, if you actually look at statistics, the idea that most millennials out there have precarious jobs or most millennials are barely getting by is simply not supported by anything. There is some data that shows that the the situation economically for younger adults today is pretty shaky and definitely not as good as it was for their parents. For example, real estate and housing costs are much higher than they used to be. This generation has 300 percent more in student debt than their parents did. Um, if you're a high school grad, if you're a millennial who didn't go to college, you are effed. Like so, the, the job market is bad for you and it is precarious. So out if there. you're talking about people who did not go to college or don't have a high school degree and also in our country minorities, then yes, I'll agree with you. There, that is, Which is the majority it, of millennials. Yeah. Well, although I no, will say I, the like, BuzzFeed piece really seems to, that's to not, focus on a certain kind of white. And yes, and, mentions and that's not a majority of millennials. Like the majority of millennials, that is not the situation. Wait, 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 wait. The, um, I, I'm saying that a majority did, of did not millennials go to, did not graduate high school. Did either wait? Did not graduate from college or uh, like minorities? Like there's like it's still more common than not to not go to college, to not graduate from college. Anyway, well, millennials are the most well educated. <laughs> of any generation, if you're looking at Yeah, and if you do graduate from college, as Emily says, you wind up with student loans. Right, but actually, this is interesting because if you're looking at student loan debt, it really depends. So if you're someone who went to, which is what this article was really talking about, which people who probably went to a decent four-year college, you have a huge benefit from going to that school if you're looking at the gap between people who have not gone to college and people who have Oh, absolutely. We can all agree on that. Now, if you're talking about people who did not graduate college, went to for-profit colleges, went to like cosmetology school, that are like pretty awful. Yes, those people I do feel sorry for. But who I do not feel sorry for are people who went to good schools and are getting a big boon from that degree. Yes. The, the, I think you, Emily's point is that for all that they might have a boon compared to the their peers who didn't go to college, they are not getting a boon compared to where their parents were at at the same point in their lives. It depends on what you're looking at. If you're looking at actual incomes, then actually young people, millennial, the millennial age currently now is actually doing a little bit better. If you're looking at disposable income, that's a separate issue. Yeah, I mean, if you but, look at incomes and housing costs, I think there's no question that real estate is far more expensive for not, us now I, than it was and for I'm the not previous saying generation. That if you're talking about issues of healthcare, education, and housing, there aren't some concerns. However, I think the <laughs> those no, are, no, I agree with you. No, but my point is the idea well, apart that apart from those three, no, 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 that, no. But my point is the idea that it's so much worse for millennials than it is for previous generations is not true. Here's what I'll there's say. some evidence that there are like slight differences, but it's not as extreme as people make it out to be when you actually look at data that like the government puts out. I think 
one reason that it millennials might say it's, it's worse for us right now is because they're just coming into adulthood and they're having to navigate and make a lot of decisions that older adults, Gen Xers, boomers obviously have already made, like navigating, where am I going to live? Who am I going to partner with? How am I going to raise my children? What are my children's prospects? Like, there's just a lot going on. You mean for, being a grown up? Like, yeah, for that, exactly. I'm sorry. Like, I'm a millennial. I'm 36. I'm an old millennial. So I think this idea that, like, oh, we're just becoming adults. I'm 36 years old. Like, I'm not. That's I, a very that's, shallow way of viewing what I'm talking about, which is like the real hard economic um, labor and psychological labor of building one's life. And I think now in the modern times to do the things that came pretty easily for previous generations like build a family have a home is harder because of the the precariousness of the labor market right now which i think the three of us sitting in this room can personally attest to that and because of the expense of things like healthcare and housing where you you really don't know if you can afford things and even if you have health insurance one bad thing happens to you i just spoke to a woman who had a great job at a fortune 50 company you know her kid got cancer she got forced out she was fired not have a job after that like there's not a lot of safety net anymore for millennials compared to previous generations. The costs are higher. Don't make a face. I am no, making no, a face I, because we're talking about it because <laughs> we're comparing it to this mythical past that never existed. No, no, but wait, hang like, on a sec, Anna. What? Let's 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 be let's listen to this. I think that it's very easy to do the grumpy old man thing and say, well, <laughs> in oh, my, my day it was no better. And like, if I could deal with it, then you should be able to deal with it. But in fact. I think there is something real going on. And what's more, there is an opportunity here. I think that like one of the things that this University of Phoenix study was saying was basically that there's still a stigma around people just taking mental health days off work instead of like physical health days. They do help. And if that helps both the employer and the employee, it should be much easier and much more common to do that. And I think that's like a simple way of making the world a better place for everyone. Yeah, I'll agree with that. I mean, I'm, I think that overall, every generation has had problem with being overwhelmed. And I do think that we should destigmatize mental health issues 100%. I just think that the idea that millennials are having a harder time with this than previous generations or somehow that millennials are working so much harder than previous generations, I think is a nice narrative that isn't supported by very much data. Except for it would not show up in the data is what I guess I'm saying that like you can look at income data and wealth data and housing price data as, until you're blue in the face basically and you can slice it any way you like and you can, you know, come in with your priors and you will wind up finding your priors reinforced by looking at the data. I think that if you come at it the other way and just listen to people, um, there is, a, as, as Emily said, like this BuzzFeed piece did touch a nerve. I think it touched a nerve among people of many ages, not just among millennials. And... I think it touched a nerve in a way that maybe it would not have done in previous generations, or maybe if it would have done in previous generations, then 
it should have done, and like maybe it would have been a good idea to publish it then. Being able to talk about these things and being able to talk about burnout as an issue, and being able to talk about how you know navigating adulthood is tough is like great. We should destigmatize that too, instead of just like writing off an entire generation as whiners. I'm not saying that it's an entire generation of whiners, but I am saying that. If we do want to talk about young people who I think we should actually be focusing on, we can talk about young people in Tunisia. We can talk about young people in South Africa. We can talk about young people in Italy. We can talk about young people in countries where it is actually quite hard to make a go of it if you are millennial or younger. I think there there are also some interesting things that she could have put in the piece that she didn't put in the piece. She kind of hinted at. Um, but one reason it's so hard to adult right now is because um, kids move really far away from their families. Like we're at a point in American life where families are very displaced. And I think like for the section she was talking about, women who do more labor at home, second shift, and that makes you more burned out for like working mothers. It's like 20 years ago, you would have had a working mother would have her mother living really nearby and able to help. And you would have had like an extended family around. We, we, there's we actually less social. Mil- no, actually, there's people are moving less than they did in the past. That I'm just saying like and I know they're saying that like, well, the data doesn't matter. But I guess that I do think data matters because when people talk about their own experiences, our own experiences are, of course, we feel them. We like so that's why if somebody writes something that seems to relate to what we experience, we'll say, yes, that's right. But that's not how we structure policy. That's not how we make changes well, based on just like what people are feeling. Wait, then- wait, hang on a second. If you're talking about structuring policy, though, I, I, I kind of get the feeling that for all that you're upset about this, you kind of agree with the policy implications of this piece, which would be things like, you know, better child care. Yeah, I mean, be- look- be- be- better support for like self-diagnosed mental health issues. Mental health care. Um, basically, employers trying to work with people who are worried about burnout, all of these things which would have made sense 20 years ago and still make sense today. So, you know, I for all that you can quibble with the whether the data show that labor mobility is going up or down, if if we are now more aware of the, call it the plight of parents who don't live close to their own parents, then that's a positive development from policy purposes. Yeah, I mean, and that's fair. And you're you're right. I mean, I think the reason that I'll be perfectly honest, I think this article just infuriated me, which I'm sure you can probably tell, was just that the author was like suggesting that because she decided to go to school to get a media studies PhD and it didn't work out so well, that somehow that says all of these things about an entire generation. And I've just found that absolutely infuriating. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it would have been, I think it was a, a good piece. It could have been a better piece if she spoke to more people about their personal experiences. But I think she does have a point about how academia is. And it's not just media studies. I mean, when I was in graduate school, I mean, everyone kind of knew, like, don't stay here. <laughs> this don't is what do I'm... it. You're going to be screwed later. You know, and I left and I didn't get my PhD because I freaked out. And I was like, I better get into that job market. And speaking of the job market, like, unemployment might be low right now, but holding down a full-time job for the, the privileged people that this article mainly addresses, like, it's very stressful. There's no, you have no sense I'm now I am speaking a little bit from personal experience but you don't really have a sense of security working in the modern labor market most jobs are inherently feel insecure and there's something that does produce a lot of, that produces a lot of anxiety which leads you to work a little bit harder which yes leads to burnout I don't see how that's like so crazy because 
I think you're not <laughs> acknowledging all of the advancements that have come in the past 30, 40 years that have actually made our lives quite a bit easier. I trade my iPhone for my dad's pension any day. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, so I'm going to try jumping in here and do less of the sit back and listen to the fireworks. Um, there is a thing that I have decided to call debranding. Um, and... The reason why it's in the news this week is that WeWork, which is a multi-billion dollar valuation company, um, which makes all of its revenues from renting out offices to people, has decided to re... I, I, I won't say rebrand, but I would say debrand itself as on a corporate level, that it's now just going to be called The We. <laughs> <laughs> Um, which which is genius. Um, the it's it's something. <laughs> I don't understand how that got through, you guys. We mean so many things, and as we said, as we were coming in here, most of them not good. You don't want to be associated with we. Now it's now it's just we, or maybe it's <laughs> or maybe it's the we company or something. It's it's, it's a tiny odd. little company. Um, it's a little we it's company. It's a little we company. Um, <laughs> But they are not the only company to distance themselves from their flagship brand. And this is fascinating to me because normally, you know, the Coca-Cola company makes lots of things. You know, the number one top thing it makes is Coca-Cola. And they're like, great, we're going to call ourselves Coca-Cola. PepsiCo, you know, you name it. Anything which – any co companies which own the big flagship brand, even Facebook, you know, has a big flagship – brand called Facebook. It buys Instagram. It buys WhatsApp. Still called Facebook. Wait, there's a, a, a marketing name for this. There's two strategies to name your company. There's the house of brand strategy. So that's like Procter & Gamble. They're called Procter & Gamble, but then they have all different products, right. Tide, blah, blah, blah. Right. Or the branded house strategy, which Ooh. would be like Apple or Facebook, as you were right. saying. Um, and so, but what's very uncommon is for a branded house company to become a house of brands company and to because there's clearly advantages to the company having its brand front and center as as part of its corporate identity um if you kind of become a weird well if you're like berkshire hathaway or something and you wind up buying companies hither and yon and you, you know you wind up doing this and you wind up doing that you can't just be a branded house you have to be a house of brands mm -hmm. um on the other hand if you are facebook or WeWork or google and you create this amazing brand and then you start branching off into other things then it makes perfect sense to just keep on calling yourself facebook or WeWork or google except for that WeWork has decided to change its name to we google changed its name to alphabet um snapchat changed its name to snap um you know, Yahoo changed its name to Oath, <laughs> and now and now changed its name again to Verizon Media Group. Mm -hmm. So, explain to me because what this says to me is they're a little bit ashamed of their brands. 
Um, um, is, is this not do – you, would you agree with that? I, I would definitely agree with that. And we see – there's other examples like Kentucky Fried Chicken calling itself KFC to sort of st- – I guess it's like – But that's an, it's, the brand itself changing. I feel like when the brand itself changes, that's – a slightly different thing, well, like Mastercard deciding to just become two balls. Yeah, I don't know if it's ashamed of the brands, but it's like it's trying to do business strategy via just cosmetic change. What I think it's trying to do is it's trying to appear like a tech company. I think that's what we're seeing in both of these instances. WeWork has oddly been valued as though it's a tech company, even though it decidedly is not. And I think what they're really trying to do is make themselves appear more like that. And that is exactly what's happening with why, MasterCard. Why, why is calling yourself we? Or <laughs> because like then it's suggesting, the then it's the suggesting <laughs> that you're creating this kind of you know new universe of how people work. And they even pointed out, oh, we're hiring all these engineers. I'm like, hiring all these engineers to do what? Like, this has been a strategy that WeWork has had. And it makes a lot of sense because of how tech companies are valued versus tech companies that are not like just a company that rents real estate. But I mean, that there are two um, announced subsidiaries that actually exist and they claim that they're going to start growing and they're not the WeWork subsidiary, but some other subsidiary are We Live, which is basically exactly the same thing where we rent, where we rent out long term leases and then sublease them to individuals, except for now it's people to sleep in rather than to work in and then we grow which is a preschool yeah preschool and right. a coding academy it, 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 no that it, it is actually both of those things it is <laughs> <laughs> teach your toddler to code <laughs> no it's no i mean it's no those are two separate things sorry i mean the, <laughs> it, it is a coding academy yeah, i actually yeah. know a kid who goes to we grow um, because his dad works for WeWork, and he's like, "Great, I get to send my kid to the kindergarten in the office, so that's nice." Um, he's like four, and he gets the choice: does he want to learn Spanish? Does he want to learn Mandarin? Or does he want to learn Hebrew? He gets to choose the kid. I, well, I, I, <laughs> that's yeah. a horrible idea. <laughs> that's good. That's I'm like, yeah. What no, kids should never get to choose? <laughs> playing with crayons. I thought. Well, so when we were talking about doing this, I I thought. At first, oh, well, if a company is changing its name, it's always this is a bad sign. Like when I heard this about WeWork, I I just thought like, oh, this company is going down. And, you know, and there was that. Can we mention the can we mention the oh, Tronk? Let's not forget. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And can can we mention the um, spreads on WeWork's bonds? Yeah, we can mention those. Have been hitting record highs. I mean, all high yield debt has been hitting record high yields of late. But we work even more than virtually any of the others. But so I Googled. I was like, this can't be true. Maybe sometimes a name change is a good thing. And I found this amazing listicle on CNBC. Oh, I love listicles. Okay, so Pepsi, which we would agree is like a decent brand, used to be called Brad's Drink in 1893. (laughs) It was founded. Um, Nike was called Blue Ribbon Sports. Um, eBay was called Auction Web. I mean, it just this is it's a great list. No, I think I think there is a case to rebrand a product. Yes, there's definitely. A I case. just don't think there's a case to rebrand a Holdco or to create a new brand which is just your holding company brand, which is you know one level in the org chart higher than the you know. Well, the why, that, I think that is, the, that is the absolute correct point because it's a it's a waste of time and money. No one yeah. cares what the holding co is called. They care about the brands. Like 
does anyone look back on Google's decision to rename itself Alphabet and say, oh, that makes perfect sense? No, everyone thinks it's weird. And Kara Swisher's pe- like, no one calls right. it that. But people, then- people talk about the FANG stocks. The G stands for Google. It, mm-hmm. the, the A's stand for Apple and Alphabet. They, I mean, Apple and Amazon. The, like, like, the fact that there's a third A is just confusing. Yeah, holding companies don't matter. So don't mess around and spend millions of dollars rebranding what they're called because that's not the brand that matters. Unless it's Berkshire Hathaway, I guess, kind of matters. Maybe. I, I mean, it was. I remember when like Condé Nast Traveler came out. That one was interesting to me because they were like Condé Nast was always just this holding company that no one had ever heard of, and then suddenly they were turning it into a brand. But that I feel like organically Condé Nast just started becoming a brand just because of the way it was covered in the press, and then it did it did have a brand to it. You know, it took on a personality. Still, I don't. I, I feel like we can all agree that this move to the we is probably ill-advised. It's a stinker. Everything we work does is (laughs) ill-advised. It's a lot of we. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe and what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about the World Bank, um, which is a large and important organization, but weirdly, I think, maybe less important than it used to be. So... Maybe that's part of what's going on here. But the president of the World Bank, Jim Yong Kim, after having got himself renominated and re-elected to a second term early to make sure it happened in the Obama administration and to like solidify his position, and then having got the World Bank a nice big chunk of change from the Trump administration and from the U.S. Congress, and like and really setting the World Bank on what looks like a credible strategy, which you can either agree or disagree with, but he was finally managed to, you know, bring the World Bank around to his way of thinking. Just one day ups and says, oh, you know what? I'm leaving. Mysterious. It's very odd. Yes. Um, there, there may or may not be some kind of other part shoe which has yet to drop. There were definitely rumors around December or so of 2016 that there was like some kind of like mini scandal surrounding him. But for whatever reason it is, there is now this kind of vacuum at the top of the World Bank, which is, well, nature abhors such a thing. (laughs) Um, And the thing which fascinates me about this is that when I'm mentally um, going down the list of like who can or should or will be the next president of the World Bank, pretty much every candidate I can think of is a woman. Yeah, we were just talking about this because I because there's only ever been male presidents of the World Bank. And only, only, only ever American, American males. American men. Yeah. A- and now Anna was saying it's probably almost definitely going to be a lady. Right. Because it's as I've said, it's not the most meaningful institution anymore. I'm not saying it's meaningless, but it's not that <laughs> meaningful. So they'll throw a woman at it. I mean, I think that's often what happens. Well, when... I mean, we have a woman in charge of the IMF and that's definitely meaningful. <laughs> Wait, can we back up and can you two explain to me why the World Bank is or is not so more the, or less so, meaningful anymore? So what happened is the World Bank used to um, – most of its stuff, like the, the classic um, sort of post-war 
big infrastructure product projects, you know, building dams in, you know, South Asia or something like that. That would be the World Bank. They would spend, they would loan billions of dollars to governments who would then go around building railways and roads and dams. And they would have a whole bunch of domain specific, you know, engineers and economists and stuff who'd say like, this is a good idea. You should build your dam there. And then they would build it and they wouldn't, you know, displace all the, they displace all the indigenous population and everyone would like go great. Um, And then what happened was that a lot of those countries um, basically just grew out of it. You know, the, like China doesn't need World Bank funding anymore. It's China. So world, the World Bank more and more became a poverty alleviation um, in development institution concentrating mostly on the poorest countries where they don't actually make a profit. They still make a profit through their lending, their official lending arm, which is known as the IBRD. Um, but that is... The amount of money that the IBRD lends out is small compared to the amount of money that that its debtors um, can borrow in international markets. Right. So, so the World Bank is mostly now important for the poorest countries in the world, oh, and a lot okay. of like health initiatives, definitely and a woman's going to run it, education initiatives. The X factor here is, of course, as it always is lately, the Trump administration. Right. So, and the question is, and the Trump what is, are they who, do? who are they going to nominate? Because historically speaking, the Americans always get to nominate the president of the World Bank, and they always nominate an American to be the president of the World Bank. To the point at which, when they nominated an Australian to be the president of the World Bank, they actually made him get U.S. citizenship before <laughs> he, they would nominate him. Um, Jim Wolfenson, who was not a bad World Bank president, you know, there, there have definitely been worse. Um, What's interesting is that they never just pick some senior American within the World Bank and say, yeah, we would like this person to take over. They always pick someone from outside the bank who has no idea really how it works internally because it's this incredibly convoluted bureaucracy in there. Um, I think it employs more economics PhDs than any other institution in the world. Um, And economics PhDs are not easy to manage. And And then what they do is they bring in someone like Paul Wolfowitz who was this, you know, crazy, like, Iraq war hawk, and say, like, you run it. And he's like, oh, yeah. what? <laughs> oh, I remember. So, so like, it's, like, the, the presidency of the World Bank is, is this weird plum that goes to friends of the whatever administration is in power in America at the time. And the rest of the world just kind of goes along with it, according to this kind of gentlemen's agreement that the Americans have with the Europeans, that the Europeans get the IMF job, the Americans get the World Bank job. If you have America and Europe both going along with this, then it's almost impossible for anyone else to get a word in. But my idea is that the Europeans just aren't really that keen to just go along with the Trump administration. And so if Trump winds up nominating and I, I've heard rumors about like David Malpass, or even worse, if he nominates Ivanka Trump. Who's David Malpass? David Malpass is like he used to be at Bear Stearns, and then he just became this kind of Trumpist economist. And, and he's under, he's at the Treasury right now. He's thankfully been quiet. Like you know, the less noise he makes, the better. Um, but like Ivanka is the one who's been closest to the world. Trump. She's worked very closely with Jimmy on Kim, and you know, if he did something like that. Then I think the world, the rest of the world, would just be like, okay, like in principle, we have historically voted for the American. In on paper, there's meant to be an open and transparent um, merit-based competition, 
um, which just by sheer coincidence has always been won by an American man. And I think the rest of the world would just say, no, let's actually have that open and transparent merit space. So the Europeans could team up with the rest of the world against right. America. And that would be like yes. the ultimate or the latest, the latest symbol of uh, the United States sort of like declining power on the global state. The Americans only have 16% of the vote. So they really need to wrangle support from the rest of the world. And like, you tell me, does this strike you as the kind of administration that can wrangle support from the rest of the world? For no, the rest of the world is ready not. to like stick it to them, I would yeah. think. And this is sort of like a easy way to do it. Right. I mean, what's the what's the downside for the Europeans and everyone else for going against the United States here? Yeah, very little. And I think well, theoretically, the downside for the Europeans is that the Americans won't vote for a European to run the IMF next time around. But that wouldn't be such a bad thing. But then couldn't the same thing happen in the Europeans team up? Everyone teams up against America again. Well, the Americans wouldn't nominate an American to run the IMF, but the Europeans want it to remain uh, like a European stronghold rather than giving it to, you know, someone from Japan. This or is terrible. Africa. This is a sign of like, again, like that post-World War II world order just sort of falling apart. If if it were to go like that and, and Steve Mnuchin. But I, I, I think you said yeah. that there is a reasonable argument that it perhaps should not be an uh, American who is the head of the no, World I Bank. Mean, it oh, it yeah. 100% should not be an American <laughs> who is like by right the head of the World Bank, just like it 100% should not be a European who is by right the head of the IMF. Like The world is more than just American and Europe, and the heads of multilateral well, especially institutions the World Bank r- reflect that. And the World Bank's making decisions about projects exactly, not especially in, in the United of, States. Right. So It, it would be reasonable to have someone in there who <laughs> actually understands that as opposed to like Paul right. Wolfowitz. Mm-hmm. And, so, you know, and so there are very... <laughs> qualified, you know, former World Bank managing directors who've also been finance ministers in places like Nigeria and Indonesia who could easily step into that role and take on the job and also be the first woman to do the job. You had a name. Um, it, it's, it's the former finance minister of Nigeria. It's um, I actually do her name. Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala. It is. My, <laughs> she's, well, I've, I've interviewed her a bunch <laughs> of times. She's, she's also now the head of Gavi, the vaccination fund. Um, <laughs> She has a great, a really interesting life story. She's, uh, she did an amazing job renegotiating Nigeria's debt back in the day. She's like, you know, she's qualified. No, she's pretty great. Um, so, what, so what do you think? I, I kind of think there's still a decent chance because Steve Mnuchin knows that if he nominates a complete crazy, then the world will vote that person down and no one wants to see that happen. So for that reason, he might not nominate a complete crazy and so in the back of my head I'm like he might nominate Intranuyi the former CEO of PepsiCo I knew I didn't make that up um, <laughs> and that she would probably then be able to garner enough support from enough other countries and then it would stay an American because she is an American um, in the same way that Jim Kim is um, or Paul Wolfowitz was I mean I mean Jim Wolfenson was um, and then like the continuity could be continued but i'm not sure that he would do that i don't know i mean it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that trump would care about at all so i feel like he could do that and it would probably be fine because of how little attention or understanding trump may have of all of what we just talked about so i i I feel like that's probably what's going to happen also indra newy i 
she was the one who talked about Doritos for women. So I just have to mention that because it was so ridiculous. You know, she had a good point. What? Wait, what was the Anna, point? No, no, she had a good point. She totally did. She 100% did. No. So what? what? Yes. No, I heard the interview where she was specifically talking about this and she was Doritos saying. Doritos for women. Yes. No, the, she wasn't saying. What she was saying was that when they were constantly like looking at the way that men and women ate Doritos, they tended to eat them differently. And it had to do with like kind of men in general being kind of like, you know, have, eating the crumbs of the bag and women. That was a very different way. So she was thinking like, well, why don't we have a product that is closer to what our customer would actually how they would actually use it? I don't think that's unreasonable. She wasn't saying like women have to eat Doritos one way. She was saying this is what our study showed. So we're going to try to create a product people would like. Just say <laughs> Just leave it there. I, I'm just, yeah. What's the, our email the ex- address? The expression, the expression on Emily's face. If you guys could only see the expression on Emily's face, Doritos women. Um, yes, slate money at slate.com. If you, if send us send an your email. angry emails. It doesn't need to be angry. Just send us a very simple email. Um, Doritos for women, good idea or bad idea, and we will tally it up and we will see whether Emily or even if they didn't mark them. Doritos for women, which is ridiculous. If they marketed low crunch Doritos, that's just weird. No one wants those. <laughs> I'm not going to buy those low crunch chips. The whole point of a chip is you you get in there and you crunch the hell out of the chip. That's half the pleasure that of eating the chip. That is not what people's revealed preference is. I don't believe that. <laughs> I refuse to believe it. Okay, let's have a numbers <laughs> round. Um, how many low crunch Doritos are in a bag? <laughs> I have no idea. Um, Emily, do you have a number? I have a number. My number is six. That is the number of months of paid leave that the new California governor, Gavin Newsom, is proposing to give to working Californians that he announced yesterday um, when he unveiled his budget. And I watched him unveil his budget, and it was filled with all these kind of like liberal goodies that it, it really made it clear to me that California is not a part of America right now. Um, things like giving health care to undocumented immigrants. Um, and building houses. Uh, building houses. I mean, it, it was just like watching, I don't, another country, basically. Is Gavin Newsom to the left of Jerry Brown? Uh, I think on. Um, on this parental leave stuff and the child care stuff, he's more um, committed than Brown was. Wow. Um, my number is $27.7 billion since we're obsessed with um, congressional spending resolutions and things these days. I thought I'd mention this one. Um, they, they've actually started beginning to try to audit the Pentagon a little bit and try and work out where the money goes when you ask for lots of money for the Pentagon. So in the in the last year, the Pentagon got $692 billion, which is a lot of money. And someone came along and said, well, did they spend $692 billion? And the answer is, no, they left $27.7 billion just unspent because they literally had no idea what to spend it on. They received $27.7 billion, um, and then they were like, yeah, we can't really think of anything to spend this on. And then if they don't spend it, they lose it, and so it's gone now. It's kind of amazing. Like even It's like flex dollars. The... the <laughs> The generals like ask for this money, Can't or they, they just or buy sometimes, a bunch of ibuprofen <laughs> exactly. Sometimes they don't even ask for the dollars. That's the weird thing. Sometimes Congress gives mm-hmm. them dollars and just says, "Go spend this," and they're like, "What are we meant to do with this?" It's amazing. Um, Anna, 
So my number is 202-452-3000. Is that someone's phone number? It is indeed. So (laughs) Jerome Powell (laughs) in... A recent discussion with the Economic Club of D.C. was being interviewed and uh, he was asked, like, well, you know, how 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 can people reach you? You know, if they and he basically said, well, just call up my office. Well, you know, if you if you call my office, you know, like they, they can connect you. And so I, I looked up their phone number. If you want to call. Have them, you called him? I have not. But if you want to, again, that number is 202-452-3000. Call up Jay Powell and <laughs> tell him number. and tell him that um, you've been reading the president's tweets and you want him to stop raising interest rates. Apparently, he's now stopped raising interest rates. He's being rates. patient. Very patient. He's being patient. No one believes he's going to raise interest rates at all this year. So we'll see whether that happens. So he's doing Trump's bidding or just no, coincidence? No, I mean, no, no. Total I mean, like, this be, because the things have changed. I mean, the things that they consider have changed now. Yeah. We will, we will talk about Jay Powell and monetary policy quite a lot, I suspect, this year because there's a big tension between what the markets expect and what the economic figures are showing. Um, and so, yeah, let's have a little Slate Plus segment on one of those economic figures, which is the biggest one of all, which is the non-farm payrolls number. Uh, if you're a Slate Plus subscriber, stay tuned for that, and we'll ask whether that might actually be negative this time around. Um, otherwise, thank you for listening to Slate Money. Many thanks to Max Jacobs for producing... Keep the emails coming on Sleep Money at Sleep.com. And we will talk to you next week on Sleep Money. <laughs>